0: morning, Hope Vale. So glad you're here to uh, come and lift up the name of Jesus with us today. Before you have a seat, uh, take just a second say hello to a few people around you. We'll see you back in a second.
1: Thanks so much. Good morning, Hope Vale. How are we doing today? Are we ready to have a great time of worship this morning? Yes, amen. I hope you've come prepared to just uh, engage with Jesus and have a, a great experience um, worshiping him together this morning as the body of Christ. And this morning, before we get to our offering, I just simply want to I encourage you guys, uh, I don't know if you know this or are aware of this, but Pastor Dan, Pastor Ken, uh, Pastor Pete, and about 30-plus other individuals are in Israel as uh, we speak, and so we want to hold them up in our prayers uh, this morning and this week to come, uh, that they would just truly um, experience God in a very unique way during their time there, that it would be a refreshing time for them. And as we continue in our worship, uh, we have the opportunity every week to give back to the Lord a portion of what he's blessed us with. And we can do that online, we can do it through our mobile app, um, or we can do it here this morning together uh, as our offering plates are passed. So I'm going to invite the ushers to come, and we're going to pray together for our offering. Father God, today we come before you, and we just quiet our hearts. We all come from different walks. We all have different journeys And Father, we've all experienced different things this week. And so, Father, no matter how we come through the doors today, maybe we come through uh, walking very closely to you. Maybe we come through just wrestling with life. Father, I pray that you would meet us right where we're at today and that we would experience you in a very unique, real way. Father, we thank you for the opportunity for members from our church and people from our church to be able to travel to Israel, to experience and go to a place where you uh, literally walked, Lord. What a great opportunity. Would you just go before them? Would you allow them to have a great experience? Would you uh, expand their horizons, Lord, and just allow them to grow closer to you? And Father, we pray that same thing for us today. As, As we get ready to just give back to you a portion of what you've blessed us with, Lord, we ask that you would take these gifts, that you would use them in a real powerful way to transform lives, to change lives within the walls of Hopevale, and to have an impact in and around our community and around the world. So God, this is yours. Would you take these gifts, would you bless them, and would you use them? We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Let's remain
0: seated while we give for a few moments. Jessica is going to lead us in this song, Lead Me to the Cross, and sing together, Savior, I come. And so, God, that's our prayer today. Would you take us to a place maybe that we haven't been before and uh, maybe give us a glimpse of the cross and a glimpse of your life that uh, we've not seen or maybe that we've not seen in a long time that we need to be reminded of today. And so, God, for every heart in this place, I pray for people who have followed you for a long time. I pray for people who have... um, just to come in today on the arm of a friend or a family member and are considering you uh, for the first time maybe today and uh, considering the things of what God really is. So um, as we get to know you, God, uh, we'll get to know more about what your story is through Christ and through this story of Judas today. So I pray for us today that uh, you give us ears to listen and a heart that's ready to receive. And I pray this in Jesus' name and the whole church said together. Amen. God bless you, gang. Have a seat. Pastor Sam.
2: Thanks, Billy, and thanks, uh, worship team. Uh, it's, it's a beautiful place to be at the foot of the cross, right? Um, this morning as we get uh, started, before we get to the message, I want to read a passage of Scripture um, together. It's not going to be on the screens, but I think it, this passage of Scripture will center us for where we are going to head for the, uh, the message this morning. It's Matthew chapter 7. And it's uh, verses 7 through 11. So if you want to open up your Bibles or open up a Bible app or something like that, you can read along. Um, This is what it says. This is Jesus speaking. He says, Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a snake. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Well, over the past uh, eight years or so, I have become more and more intrigued and uh, more and more saddened by the countless stories of younger people who are deconverting from their Christian faith. Uh, If you follow the trends that are going on, not only here in America, but globally, um, over the past 60 years or so, Christianity has actually been in a steady decline, um, especially here in America. In a poll that was taken in 1948, if you look at the stats, um, the Gallup organization found that, nine, uh, that they found that 91% of Americans identified as a Christian in 1948. 91%. That's a that's a, a gigantic number. Um, they took that same survey in 2007, uh, about 60 years later, and the percentage was 78.4 percent. And then just seven years later in 2014, three years ago, that percentage went down again to 70.6 percent. Now, there are probably several factors for this, but by and large, people publicly identifying as Christian in America are, de- are in decline. Um, and one of the major reasons that this is a reality is the fact that near that nearly one out of every three Americans under 35 years old today claim to be religiously unaffiliated. And this means that they they don't identify with any formal religion whatsoever. When they they take a survey and someone asks them, what religion are you? They check the box that says, none, no affiliation. They don't have any formal religious affiliation. They've they've been called and labeled nuns, not N-U-N. But N O N E, nuns, because they are non religiously affiliated. And these nuns, listen to this, this is, was interesting. I was, as I was researching this, I found this. These nuns comprise the second largest religious group in the United States behind evangelical Protestants. There's a large number of people, 35 years old and younger, who have been surveyed. And a lot of these nuns, they're actually young adults who grew up in church. But for a plethora of reasons, they have abandoned the faith of their childhood and the church of their parents. And I know it's hard to fathom and reason with when you look across a full auditorium almost every Sunday, or when you hear things like when we say we took over 150 middle schoolers and high schoolers to our retreat last weekend. It's hard to think that this is a reality, but, but it is true, and it's true because a majority of churches across America are not flourishing, they're actually declining, and it's true because I've seen as a youth pastor, students that have grown up in my different youth ministries over the past 15 years that I've been a youth pastor, um, I've seen them walk away from their faith once they reach the university level or the young adult uh, level. And, and they're not fringe kids either. They're not kids who are barely connected. These have been kids that have, have, we have paid a high investment in. They've been our core kids. And, and, and what I've observed, actually, both through personal interaction with these kind of students and through reading hundreds and hundreds of deconversion stories online. That's actually a thing. You can go to Google, type in deconversion stories, and um, you can have some reading that could be very interesting to you, but also it can sadden your heart. Um, but after reading hundreds and hundreds of them and, and personally interacting with students like this, what I've discovered is that people deconvert for two main reasons. Um, one, the first reason is because they begin to ask deep questions fact-based questions about life. They're, they're starting to have a lot of questions about, okay, where do we come from? What's true about life in general? What have I learned? What am I observing? They're hearing all of these different things that are battling, and so they start asking deep, fact-based questions about life, and, and what they're getting in response, by and large from the church, are faith-based answers that don't address their questions in reality. And so they're asking the fact-based question, but they're getting a faith-based answer, like, well, you just have to believe it a little more. Or you just have to have more faith, and that's just not cutting it for them. And so that's one reason that they begin to walk away. The second reason that I've found is because there's just a deep sense of disappointment with the church or with God or faith or Jesus or religion that life hasn't gone the way that they were promised it would with God, and if they, if they can't rationalize it, can't reason it, they just can't justify it anymore, so they become profoundly disappointed with this childhood faith, and so they simply just grow out of it like it was a childhood fairy tale. And I've had, i got to tell you, I've had many conversations with students over the years who just can't seem to justify how there could be a God who loves them, who has also dealt them or others um, the hand that they, in life that they've had to live. And so they just cannot justify those two things together. And just simply saying something like, well, you need to have faith, or God is in control, or you just need to trust God, no matter how true those things are, no matter how true, how true they are, they, it just doesn't solve the problem. It doesn't cut it for them. It, they, they're disappointed, and they're confused, and they're looking for answers. And the truth here this morning is this. It's that we all deal, every single one of us, deals with some kind of a disappointment with the church, sometimes with God, with Jesus, faith, religion in our lives. We, we deal with those kind of things. And you may even be here this morning, and now you're thinking, man, I have a category that defines me. <laughs> I've been searching for whatever it is that would define who I am. And that category you talked about were non-religiously affiliated. That describes you. But you defined yourself here this morning. Maybe it's you're grasping at a last straw saying, God, show up, please, because I can't have nothing, so show up. Or maybe you're here and you're, you're on the verge, you haven't quite walked away, but you're on the verge of walking away from all of this because the answers you're looking for just simply aren't coming. Or, or maybe you're feeling like walking away because your disappointment with God has turned or, or with, with who God has turned out to be in your life uh, is overshadowing any amount of faith that you can somehow muster up to get through it. And so you're here and you're saying, God, I'm giving you one last shot today before I just walk away from it all. Or maybe you're here and this isn't you, but maybe you're here and you have a friend or a loved one who I've just defined. And you've been saying, man, I I need something. Help me. Help me reach them. Help me say something. What is it that I need to talk to them about? How How can I step into this with them? And you're looking ways to for uh, ways to reach out to them. Wherever you find yourself here this morning, I wanna say two things to you. Number one, I wanna say, man, I am so glad you're here. I am so glad you're here because what we're about to talk about may make a difference in your life or in the life of someone you love or a friend. And the second thing I wanted to say to you is, hold on. Hold on, because maybe... Just maybe after this morning, you'll begin to either wrestle with a faith that makes sense to your adult life, or you'll be able to help someone else do that. And the reason I say all of this is because of this first story we're going to explore this morning in this series we're beginning today called Crossroads. What we're going to do for the next few weeks is we're going to look at the stories that surrounded the Easter story. We, we usually focus, focus on the events of Jesus leading up to the cross, um, the grave, the resurrection, all of that. Um, during this time, and we will, but uh, we, we thought as we planned this series out, we thought, what if, what if we focused on and looked at the stories that surrounded that story? You know, what if we focused on the people's lives that witnessed all of this go down? You know, maybe we would see ourselves in some of these stories and see how the cross and the resurrection intersected with their stories like it wants to intersect with our story So the reason I've been uh, talking about the nuns, um, I've been talking about deconversion, walking away from faith and all that, is because this first story we're going to look at today, it's a pretty difficult one. It's a difficult one because it deals with a close follower of Jesus who decided that Jesus wasn't enough for him. That following Jesus wasn't good enough for, for him anymore, and he deconverted. But he even took it a step further. He didn't just deconvert, he betrayed Jesus. This morning we're going to dive into the man that is Judas Iscariot. But before we get to the events that led up to uh, Judas's decision to walk away from following Jesus and to betray him, because that's, I think a lot of us would know that if I say the name Judas, you'd say betrayer. That's, that's the thing that, that pops into our head. Even people who don't know anything about the Bible, you, you talk about a betrayal situation and they call it, you're a Judas, because that's how he's been pinned. But I, I want us to look at Judas and get a glimpse of him before all of this happened to kind of get a sense of who this man was because maybe that could change the conversation a little bit because it's real easy to demonize Judas it's real easy to look at him and go yeah you're the evil one but but if we looked at him from a human perspective what would we see what would we find out about him so I want to do that first before we get to the rest of his story so John chapter 12 Uh, We find a glimpse into the life of Judas, into his story, and we're going to look at verses 1 to 6. And this is John writing, and this is what he says. He's describing an event that happened with the disciples, with Jesus, with some close friends of Jesus. It says, six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, uh, this place called Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead, just one chapter earlier in the book of John. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus, took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, and she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, notice John's commentary on Judas, he objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. Now notice John's commentary after this. He didn't say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As a keeper of the money bag, now if you have your Bible open and you like to underline it, and I would just underline that phrase, as the keeper of the money bag. This is a really important phrase that I think a lot of times we, we rush over and skip over. But as a keeper of the money bag, He used to help himself to what was put into it. Now two things as I read this passage become abundantly clear from John's description of him. And we have to remember this. John is writing his gospel decades, decades after the events that are taking place here. So what he knows about the events are are different because of events that have happened leading up to him writing it. He has a way different perspective on Judas on what was going on there than he did in the moment. And so we have to remember that, that John is writing way later, he's had some time to reflect back. But the two things that I think become abundantly clear are this, number one, Judas must have been viewed early on, before betraying Jesus, he must have been viewed early on as very trustworthy and a person of high integrity. Now you may be saying, Sam, how in the world do you get that from that passage? Uh, John has just labeled him a thief, labeled him a liar, all this stuff. Here's why I say that, because you have to look at this passage. Uh, I don't want us to try to look at it without the commentary of John. Okay, So John is writing this commentary decades later. I want us to just look at it from if, if we didn't know what we do know about Judas, what would we see here? And what we would see is that he was given charge of the money bag for Jesus and the disciples And here's what I know to be true. You just don't put anyone in charge of the finances. You give the money bag and all of the money for your entire group to someone that you trust, to someone who has high integrity so that they're going to take care of it and not, or someone you perceive to have high integrity and perceive to be trustworthy. So Judas must have been perceived early on to be trustworthy and to be full of integrity. Because they gave him this huge responsibility. Now for me, as I started to think through that, that that kind of shifted and changed a little bit of this story for me. Because at first I was just kind of demonizing Judas and saying, well, of course he is. He's evil. He's going to betray Jesus. But, But if you think of him as a person who is very trustworthy, a person of high integrity, man, that makes it a little more real. It makes it a little more raw. It makes us as human beings go, wait a second. I could be just like him. I could be just like him. The second thing that becomes really clear is that that view has changed the more that they understood about Judas after the crucifixion, after the events that we're about to talk about. Because before the crucifixion of Jesus, the disciples viewed Judas as very trustworthy, and that is huge because we don't often look at him objectively in the moment because of what we know about his future. So just think about this for a second. Here's Judas, he's, he's maybe perceived to be highly trustworthy, a guy full of integrity, he's got the money bag, he's trying to help them understand how to do the financial stuff. And here's Judas, he's been following Jesus as his disciple for three whole years. He was one of the 12 closest people to, to Jesus on the whole planet, ever. He got to see almost everything that Jesus did, hear almost everything that Jesus taught and said, experience everything that Jesus was all about. So here was my question, if that is the profile of who this guy is, then what would make a guy like that do something like we're about to read? Matthew chapter 26, verses 14 to 16, it says this, then one of the 12, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked what are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. And from then on Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. What would make a guy like we just described with that kind of a profile what would make him do something like that? Well, we're never really told exactly what Judas's heart motives were in going to the chief priests and betraying Jesus, but Theologians agree that it was probably one of three things or maybe a combination of all three of these. It could have been uh, avarice, which is, just means greed for wealth or material gain. John tells us that he was a thief. He, he would steal money from the, the money bag. He asked the chief priest, what are you going to give me for, for Jesus? So it could have been greed for wealth. Uh, number two, it could have been anger. It could have been anger. He could have been jealous over not being one of the inner group of disciples. Jesus had many people who followed him. He had 12 men that he called his closest disciples and then out of those 12 he had three that were the people he hung out with all the time and that was Peter James and John so Judas was not one of those three and so it may have been that he was angry it may have been that he was jealous of those three and he wasn't a part of that inner circle and so maybe he was saying you know I'll show you for not putting me as a part of the inner circle it could have been that or three it could be just absolute disappointment Absolute disappointment. Maybe Judas felt like Jesus was not who he claimed to be, or he wasn't acting like the Messiah that Judas expected him to be. And the more I begin to study this whole story, the more I'm convinced that while Judas was greedy and he was a thief, that that wasn't what what drove him ultimately to betray Jesus. In fact, if you, you look at how much he was paid for the betrayal, 30 pieces of silver, you would have to conclude, wow, that wasn't a lot. Even back in in that day, that wasn't a lot of money at all. In fact, it was considered to be a paltry, a meager amount that you would be paid if if someone else's animal were to kill one of your servants. Exodus 21 tells us about that. So I think it's a little bit, it becomes a little more clear. Judas didn't do it for the payoff. And I'm becoming more and more convinced that Judas did this outside, and listen, this is, this is just from a, a human, humanistic thought process, okay? Outside of the fact that God was doing something incredible here. He was using this event, this person, to set up something that he was going to use for the death of his son on the cross to save the world. Okay, that, that's the, the spiritual purpose of what's going on here. But just from a purely humanistic point of view, Jesus, Judas did this, or I'm becoming more convinced that he did this, because of his profound disappointment with who Jesus turned out to be for him in his own life. Judas walked away from Jesus because in Judas's mind, Jesus was a fraud. He was a fake, a phony. To Judas, the Messiah was supposed to be a warrior. He wasn't supposed to be a lover. He was supposed to be a, a political powerhouse, not a peacemaker. And as one author states, to Judas, Jesus was acting less and less regal and royal And he was acting more and more like a defeatist on his way to death. And so Judas, to Judas, Jesus was an utter disappointment. Judas clearly wanted Jesus to be something else for him. And so he began to do what many people do when they become disappointed that Jesus isn't who they think he should be for them. And he distanced himself. And then he began to deconvert. And all deconversion stories have one major thing in common, and Judas's story is, is also true with this, that the person who deconverts can't justify faith in something or someone that doesn't line up with, with what they know or what they perceive to be true. The person who deconverts can't justify faith in something or someone that doesn't line up with what they know or perceive to be true. And so for Judas, what he thinks about who the Messiah should be this is, this is what it's supposed to be. And then he looks at Jesus and he goes, I can't, I can't put those two things together. They're not lining up in my mind. And so he begins to walk away and say, you know what, you're a fraud. You're a fake. You're not who you say you are. Even though he's been with him, even though he's seen the miracles, even though he's heard what he's taught, he's, he's starting to go, I don't, I don't think you are exactly who you say you are. And so he begins to walk away. Later on in in Matthew's account of this story, the plot begins to thicken because Judas finds out that Jesus somehow knows what he's up to. Matthew 26, verses 20 to 25, it says, when evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the 12. And while they were eating, he said, truly I tell you, one of you will betray me. And they were very sad, and they began to say to him one after the other, "'Surely you don't mean me, Lord.'" Jesus replied, "'The one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me.'" Basically saying, if you're in the room, it could be you. "'The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him, but woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born.'" Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, "'Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi.'" Jesus answered, you have said so. See, Jesus called it out right there, right in front of all of his disciples, and his disciples still couldn't figure it out. Why? The reason why is because at this point in time, Judas was still considered to be highly trustworthy, full of integrity. They would be like, no, there's no way. And so they're even looking at themselves going, it's not me, is it? It's not me. They're not, they didn't have in their mind, you know what, they're, I can just see this, they didn't go, Judas. They didn't do that. They were all looking at themselves going, it, me? Who, me? No, it can't be me. It can't be him. It's not him. It's not him. He was thought of as highly trustworthy, but Judas's actions here were a sham because earlier on in this chapter, he's gone to the, the chief priests. He's, he's already begun the betrayal process. Notice how everyone, everyone else says, not me, right? And then it's pointed out In this passage, that Judas just follows suit after all that? Like, he can't be the one who doesn't say it, right? So he's got to say, not me, right? But notice the difference. In the passage, the others call Jesus Lord. Judas calls Jesus Rabbi. Lord's personal, Rabbi's professional. Judas is deconverting. Another account of this story says that Jesus said to Judas after this, Go do what you have to do. And all the rest of the disciples thought that Jesus meant he was going to go get more food or something. You know, make a Kroger run. But uh, Judas knew exactly what Jesus meant. It revealed to Judas, Jesus knew exactly what he was up to. And so Judas hightails it out and leaves. And I find it interesting that after Judas leaves, Jesus institutes the Last Supper. He gives us the ordinance of communion, which we are actually going to celebrate here in a little bit. And I wonder, just uh, strictly from a human standpoint, what would have happened in Judas's mind had he stayed? Had he experienced that? You know, maybe things from a human standpoint would have been different. I don't know. So Judas leaves, he informs the chief priest that Jesus and his followers will be at the garden praying. It probably was their custom after celebrating the Passover together. They probably have done this uh, for at least three years together and they may have just gone to the garden and prayed afterwards. I, I don't know how Judas exactly knew where Jesus was going to be, um, but he did. And so he pointed the chief priest there. And in the garden, the story tells us that Judas betrays Jesus with a kiss on the cheek, a greeting that one friend would actually give to another. a One close friend would give to another. It's the ultimate act of betrayal. And in my mind as I'm, I'm reading this, <laughs> I think Judas is thinking at this point, I've got you. I've got you cornered. The, word, the world is now going to see what I've come to suspect and know all along that you're a fraud. You're a fake, an imposter messiah. The, the religious leaders have had it right all along. You're a blasphemer. Judas was convinced that he was right about who Jesus was. And in one moment, one solitary moment, Judas became the spokesperson for everyone who's ever walked away from their faith because they've been hurt or disappointed by the church or the fact that God didn't show up for them like they expected he should. Judas quit. He just quit. His disappointments with Jesus drove him to quit on him. But I wonder I wonder what might have been in Judas's life had he brought his disappointments to Jesus. Had he brought his doubt to Jesus. Had he brought his questions to him. What might have happened with Judas? Had he said, "Jesus, can I talk to you for a second? I don't get it. I'm I'm kind of disappointed. I thought you were going to be this." and you're, you're this, or I, I really don't understand. Can you help me understand? What, what might have been Judas's life had he taken that approach to Jesus? We'll never know. We'll never know, but as we find out from the end of Judas' story, his pride wouldn't let him. He was so convinced that he was right until he was proven wrong. Until he was proven wrong. And even then, he wouldn't humble himself to acknowledge what he should do about being wrong. Look how it all went down. Matthew chapter 27, verses 1 to 5. It says, Early in the morning, all the chief priests and the elders of the people made their plans how to have Jesus executed. So they bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. All this is going on. Judas is watching it. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse. And he returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. What's that to us? They replied, that's your responsibility. So Judas threw the money into the temple and left. Out of disgust, out of anger, I don't know, but he left. And then he went away and he hanged himself. And that's the end of Judas's story. Judas realized he was wrong and filled with remorse over betraying an innocent man to death. He, tr- he decided to try to fix it. He thought maybe in his mind, maybe if I go back to the chief priests, the guy who I got this money from, and I just I give it back to him, then maybe they can go, oh, okay, we'll fix it. We'll make it all better. And maybe he convinced himself in his mind that I can fix this. I can, I can do this on my own. I can make this better and as he's staring at the chief priests, and they're staring back at him going, <laughs> sorry about your bad luck, Judas. He realized he was a pawn in this whole game. It was too late. And instead of facing his sins, repenting, asking for forgiveness, maybe going to the rest of the disciples and going, guys, I was wrong. <laughs> Jesus, I was wrong. I need, I need you to forgive me for this. Instead of doing that, he decided to end his life. Now, some people might see that word remorse and think, see, Judas turned it around at the end. He made everything right, but actually what happened here was very sad. It was very sad. Judas's pride wouldn't allow him to actually own up and face his sins and ask for forgiveness, so he ended his life instead. Because remorse isn't the same as repentance. Now, I can feel bad about my sin and still do nothing with it. Judas felt bad about what he did. But he didn't seek forgiveness. He didn't seek out Jesus. He didn't seek out the people that he wronged and try to completely make it right with them. And so again, Judas quit. But this time, Judas quit on himself. He wasn't only disappointed in who Jesus was, he is now disappointed in who he was. But again, I ask, and I have to ask, what if Judas wouldn't have quit? What might have happened in Judas's life? See, so I think what we can learn from Judas's tragic story is this. It's that when I'm disappointed with God, I need to question and don't quit. I need to wrestle and not walk away. I need to step into it. And even though it may be painful, even though it may be difficult to wrestle and to question, it's better than the alternative of quitting and walking away. When I'm disappointed with God, question, don't quit, wrestle, don't walk away. Whenever I, uh, whenever I counsel couples who are dealing with disappointment in their relationships over unmet expectations, or, or when I'm talking with parents and kids over the same kind of stuff, there are, there are four things that I tell them that they can do with that disappointment. And I think this is true when it comes to disappointment with church, God, Jesus, religion, whatever. They can do four things with it, with disappointment. You can either distance yourself... We can distance ourselves. We can walk further and further away from the relationship until it's non-existent or just walk away from it altogether. We can create distance. Uh, they can, Secondly, they can distract themselves or we can distract ourselves. We can get so busy doing something else and focusing on something else that you don't pay attention to the problem. You can disguise the problem. That's the third thing you can do with it. You, know, you can mask the pain, pretend like it never happened. Uh, call it something else, oh, it's not really that bad. Or you can do number four, and you can deal with it. So you can distance yourself, you can distract yourself, you can disguise it, or you can actually deal with it. And so when we find ourselves disappointed with God, we can tend to do the same thing with our relationship with him. We can distance ourselves until we find ourselves deconverting and walking away altogether. We can distract ourselves so we don't have to actually face it. We can disguise our disappointment and pretend like it doesn't exist only for it to rear its head later on in our life. Or we can lean into it and deal with it. And here's what I know from talking with people from walking through it in my own life personally. Dealing with it is hard work. Dealing with disappointment in God, dealing with disappointment in the church, dealing with disappointment in faith, it's hard work. It can hurt. And you may not get everything answered that you want to have answered. And you may not even like the answers that you get. But here's what I do know. Relationally, you'll never feel closer. You'll never feel closer. It's those moments in in a couple's life when they walk through this kind of stuff together that the fight may be hard, but the relationship gets closer because they're working on it together and they're wrestling with it together. And the same thing is true with our relationship with God. So we may not completely understand it. It may be very difficult. It may hurt but because you're wrestling with it together with God and you're asking deep questions and allowing him to answer those questions, your relationship is bonding closer and closer together. When you bring your questions to God and wrestle out loud with them, with him, you just might find yourself getting closer to him. And here's what I know to be true about my own relationship with God. The, the older my relationship with him becomes, the less I feel like I have him figured out, but the closer I feel to him. The older my faith becomes, the less I, I when, when I was young in my faith, I, man, I felt like I had God figured out. Went to Bible college, felt like I had God figured out because I studied it. But the longer I've been a follower of Jesus, the more I realize the less I know about God, but man, the closer i I've become to him, and the closer my relationship is with him. When I'm disappointed with God, I need to question, don't quit. Wrestle, don't walk away. So what if, what if instead of quitting or giving up on your faith when it doesn't make sense or when it disappoints you, what if instead you began to question, to ask big questions, surround yourself with people who aren't just answer people, but who will step into the mess with you and question with you and ask big questions and help you wrestle with it. What if you wrestled with it with God? What would your faith begin to look like? What if God really is big enough for all of our questions and doubts and disbeliefs? And what if God is okay with us wrestling with him over what we don't understand? What if he's okay with it? What if that's what he wants? Well, if you're here this morning and, and I've been describing you and you're, you're on the verge of walking away and you're like, Sam, I, I need to know more. There's, there's no way in this short amount of time that we could answer and walk through all of this together. I'd like, I'd like to give you, um, uh, share with you a powerful resource that I think has helped me. It's helped several people that I've, I've talked um, with about this. Um, one of my favorite pastors and authors, Andy Stanley, uh, he did a message series back last September called Who Needs God? And it really dealt with this, this subject. It's a six-week series focused on answering a lot of the questions that people um, who have or are considering deconverting, the, those questions they have, or, or maybe they're just disappointed in, with, with God in general, those questions that they have, this series kind of addresses that and talks about that. So I put the link to the series um, in our notes on our app, on our, um, the Hopeville app, If you're following along there, or you can go here, go to www.whoneedsgod.com, and you can scroll down, and the messages are all right there. I'm telling you what, it is worth it. It's worth it. They're about 40 minutes long a piece. There's six of them. That time is well worth it, if it means wrestling with God to get to a place where your relationship is closer with him. And so if that's you, if I've described you this morning, I I would just encourage you, challenge you, go check that out. Watch it. Maybe watch it with a group of friends and talk about it afterwards and, and really start to explore you know what are, what are some of the things that, that maybe deep down inside have caused me to maybe turn and walk away or, or maybe be on the edge of walking away, but maybe they don't need to be. Maybe I'm unnecessarily feeling that way. Maybe it's just that God wants me to wrestle with these concepts. Maybe he wants me to question a little more so I can get a deeper relationship with him. So go there. And if you're someone here who who has a friend or a loved one who's on the verge, share that with them. Share it with them. Watch it with them. Talk about it with them. I think it would be a great resource to help them understand a little bit more about what God really wants for their life. When I'm disappointed with God, question. Don't quit. Wrestle. Don't walk away. What What might have how Judas's life looked like, had he wrestled, had he questioned instead of walking away and quitting. I mean, think about it. It would have, it may have been the greatest redemption story ever. The fact the guy, I mean, can you just imagine the guy who betrayed Jesus, looking Jesus straight in the face and saying, I was wrong, I need you to forgive me, and Jesus looking straight back at him and saying, I forgive you and I'm restoring you and I want a relationship with you. Can you just imagine the power of that? If Judas had, had wrestled and not quit? If he wouldn't have walked away? Imagine what that would have been like. And imagine what your life might look like if you just didn't become one of the statistics who walked away from faith in Christ because of disappointment, but, but you leaned in a little harder. You questioned, you wrestled, what might your life look like what might the lives of your friends and loved ones look like and what would their relationship with christ look like when i'm disappointed with god question don't quit wrestle don't walk away let's pray together god i uh, i thank you for this really tough story of judas um one that I think we, we hear so often and we have it pinned in our head that this is who Judas was, that this is what this story is about, and yet the more we explore it, the more we find ourselves smack right in the middle of it. And God, we all deal with, with something in our life that, that maybe disappoints us a little bit about uh, things, or maybe we can't come to grips with the, the reality of it, but God, I pray that in those moments we wouldn't walk away from it, we wouldn't quit on it, but we would lean in a little harder and that we would go after it a little more, and that we would find you in the midst of it, drawing us closer to you. And I pray for someone here this morning who maybe they're on the verge of walking away. They're giving you one last shot. God, I pray that something that we talked about here or said here will spark something in their mind to convince them, I just need to wrestle. I just need to question, go after a little more. And God, that that's a win. (laughs) That's a win if they would take that step. So I pray that they would do that in their lives. In Jesus' name, amen.
1: Thank you, Sam. A powerful message. On a morning that we get to celebrate communion together as we do once a month here at Hope Vale. And this morning as we prepare ourselves to enter that time of kind of reflection and thinking about truly what Christ has done for us, I I think about Sam's message, I think about Judas, and I have to think about myself, and I have to start to wrestle with, where is my life? And I, I, the question I have for you this morning is, is, where is your life? Where are you at with Jesus? Have you fully committed to him? Do you, do you live for him? Are you sold out for him? Have you truly said, you know what, God, I'm, I'm gonna live for you with all my heart, soul, mind, and strength, I'm gonna live for you. Or are you sitting here this morning and maybe you're in that place where maybe you really have thrown in the towel. Maybe you're only here because mom or dad invited you or made you come or a friend invited you and you're going to check things out maybe one last time. Maybe this morning you truly are at a crossroad. And when I think about that, I think about sometimes the hurt the disappointment the pain that life can bring us and it doesn't always meet our expectations similar to what Sam was talking about with Judas maybe it just didn't quite measure up the way we thought it should and yet in the midst of those moments Jesus is right there waiting for us waiting for us to come home and I think about Judas and I think about the crossroad that he was at What would have been different? What might have been different if he had not just experienced remorse, but if he really would have truly experienced repentance and he would have turned from his sin and walked away and gone a completely different direction? That one step may have made all the world of difference for him. And I know it was part of God's plan and what he had in store. And what about us? Maybe today one step maybe just one step closer to Jesus would make all the difference for eternity for you and where you're heading. So before we get to communion this morning, I simply want to extend an invitation in two ways. Number one is if you're here this morning and you are truly seeking and you're truly searching, I want Hopevale to be a place where you can be comfortable with that. You can be comfortable walking through these doors and figuring it out, hearing messages, experiencing worship together, and taking time to figure that out. The other thing I want to offer is that if today truly is that crossroad moment, I want to extend an, extended, I want an invitation to you this morning to take that step of faith, to maybe get out of the comfort zone and truly give your life to Jesus. So if that is you this morning, I'm going to ask us to do something. We don't do this all the time, but I'm going to simply ask if we would bow our heads and we would close our eyes and we would simply hear the still small voice of Jesus. Is he speaking to you? Is he knocking at the door of your heart? Is today the moment Which step are you going to take? Will you trust him? Will you follow him? If that is your desire today, would you do me a favor and simply, I want to simply pray for you, and I want to simply have you pray with me. Would you do me a favor? Would you lift your hand and let me know, you know what, Steve, I want to take that step today. Today is a crossroad moment. Today is the day I'm going to put a stake in the ground and say, you know what, I'm going to follow Jesus. I'm going to trust him. If that is you today, would you simply let me know that so I can pray for you? Awesome. Thank you. Thank you. I see a few hands scattered around the auditorium this morning. Would you make this your prayer this morning? Each of us, even if we know Jesus, would you make it your prayer? Father God, we come before you this morning and we realize and recognize that we are broken. Father, we come to you this morning remorseful, maybe for where life has been heading. But this morning, we truly want to ask for your forgiveness, and we truly want to take a step in the other direction. We want to walk with you. We want to trust you with all of our life. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus, and his death on the cross for our sins. I commit my life to you. I follow you with all that I am and all that I will ever be. In the powerful name of Jesus, we pray this. Amen. If that's your desire this morning, I hope that when you leave here, you'll share that with someone. I wanna encourage you to to get plugged in to a community group, to a class, to connect. As we get ready to enter our time of communion together, um, just a couple of things. Here at Hopevale, we want you to know that you're invited to take communion with us. If you believe in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are welcome. It doesn't matter your background, it doesn't matter your experience and your history. If you've committed your life to him, you're welcome to be a part of communion. And if that's not you this morning, if you're wrestling and struggling with where Jesus fits in, then I would simply invite you to let the elements pass you by because really it would just be a a meaningless ritual for you. And we want it to have significance and importance for you. And if you've got younger children here, if they know Christ, we want you to take that journey with them. We want you to explain what communion is to them. We want them to understand who Christ is and his desire to have a relationship with us. And if they know that, then they're welcome to participate as well. So this morning is the ushers come and we prepare our hearts let's pray father god we thank you today for your son jesus father we take a moment to stop and look inward in our own lives and father we think about your son jesus father we think about the fact that maybe we even ourselves have betrayed him father we know that his body was bruised his body was beaten his body was whipped as a result of my sins so father this morning we thank you for the fact that Jesus went to the cross and then went to the grave but he defeated death and he defeated hell and he rose again Father, help us to remember that today. In Jesus' name, amen. on that night that Jesus had brought the disciples together for the Passover meal, he took the bread and giving thanks, he, he broke it and he gave it to the disciples saying, this is my body, take and eat, do this in remembrance of me. As we think about Jesus' body and the blood that he shed this morning, I want to invite us to not only reflect that and listen to, to what he has to say in our hearts and think about what he's done for us, but I want to invite you as we pass the juice as well that to listen to the song that uh, is going to be playing. It's called... Um, you love me anyway. And there's some words I want you to listen for. The words I think that make all the difference in the world. It says, I am the thorn in your crown, but you love me anyway. I am the sweat on your brow, but you love me anyway. I am the nails in your wrists, but you love me anyway. And it says, I am Judas's kiss, but you love me anyway. You see, we are never too far away. We're never too far removed to experience the love of Christ. And as we reflect this morning, you may sit here and be like, now's the time. You may walk out of this place and be like, now's the time. I understand who Jesus is we really consider and think about what he's done for us through the shedding of his blood father God we thank you for your son we thank you for the blood that was shed for our sin father we thank you that we get to experience this together in Jesus name Amen
3: the question was raised As my conscience fell A silly little lie Well it didn't mean much But it lingers still In the corners of my mind Still you call me to walk On the edge of this world To spread my wings and fly The future is so far My heart is so frail I think I'd rather stay
1: Jesus took the cup he said this is the cup of the new covenant this is my blood which is shed for you do this in remembrance of me Father God we thank you for that awesome awesome love that you have for us that even when we don't deserve it you went to a cross and you died in our place We thank you for that demonstration of love for each and every one of us. We pray this and thank you for this in the powerful, powerful name of Jesus. Amen.
0: Let's stand and worship together before we leave and sing of this love that God has so graciously given.
2: Thanks for being here this morning, everyone. And as you go from here, may you wrestle with your faith in a way that draws you closer and closer to Christ. Thanks for being here.